You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Thank you uh, for that introduction, Jimmy. I'm here because he insisted that I come this year to speak to you. I have cut out speaking engagements from 21 to 23 because of a book I'm writing on the text of the New Testament, and it may extend into 2024. I started it in 1979, so um, my wife says, I'm not a procrastinator, I just do side projects. Uh, I, I hadn't heard the one about me being Indiana Jones before, but I can tell you this, I am not at all like Indiana Jones. Uh, he was an American imperialist thief. <laughs> all that I take are pictures, nothing else. And that actually is a very important thing to remember because these monasteries want to keep their manuscripts and we want to show them how much we value them. CSNTM, you can remember it this way. If you know who, that's the initials of the organization and it would be great if you could visit the website to see what we've done. You know who C.S. Lewis is? That's the first two letters. And you've all watched Wizard of Oz and you know who Antium is. CSNTM, CSNTM. It doesn't take too much imagination. Some of you from Oklahoma still aren't getting it, I guess. Okay, but CSNTM.org, that's our website. You can see uh, we've got blogs on the places we've been, over four dozen places. I've been in 35 different countries, and we're the world's leading institute for digitizing and discovering Greek New Testament manuscripts to help us get back to the original wording of the New Testament. It's a very, very exciting project. But Jimmy, I wanted to make one correction about what you had to say, and that was uh, the names of my children. You at least got biblical names. That's, That's important because my wife and I are a very godly couple, and we have our children named after people in the Bible. Because if you don't, you're a sinner. And uh, so, uh, and we have four boys, but we, we didn't, I don't know where you came up with Noah, Benjamin, Andrew, Zachary. Um, our boys are named after men in just one chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter six. Death, pestilence, famine, and disease. <laughs> and sometimes when I speak uh, on occasion, sadly, death follows me. But as you can see by looking at me, famine and I have always been estranged. So, is what we have now what they wrote then? Here's a picture of one of the earliest manuscripts of Paul's letters. There's 86 leaves of it. And this is the end of Ephesians and the beginning of Galatians. It's uh, written about AD 250, maybe as early as 200. We photographed all the leaves several years ago, and it's just amazing to see these ancient manuscripts. Ephesians comes before Galatians in this one, just the opposite of all modern books, Bibles, and you might say, that scribe got it wrong. Well, this is the first copy we have of Paul's letters. Maybe the rest of us got it wrong. I don't know why we switched, but that's that's for another day. Okay, my topic. Is, is what we have now, what they wrote then. And I want to start with a skeptical view about that. I'm starting with a quote from that great scholar, Dan Brown, in his Da Vinci Code. He says, the Bible has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Well, he's a novelist, but he believes this to be the case. 
So let me get some of you that we might want to take a little more seriously. Kurt Eichenwald, who's a, a St. Mark's graduate from Dallas, and he is a journalist writing for Newsweek, which used to be an accurate telling of the news. He wrote an article, The Bible So Misunderstood It's a Sin, and this came out two days before Christmas, uh, seven years ago. You can see that when you get these onslaughts of Christianity in newspapers, magazines, radio, podcasts, television shows, they always happen around Christmas or Easter. And the, the reason is to say, you Christians are going to be especially interested in Jesus around Christ, Christmas and Easter, and we want to show you how stupid you are for believing in him. It's a very skeptical view. Here's what he says in this accurate news magazine. Playing telephone with the Word of God. That's his section. No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. And neither have I. So far, I would agree with everything he's written. And then he says, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations, of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. So you're playing the telephone game. It goes down hundreds of times through copies, bad translations. We can't possibly tell what the original New Testament said, presented as historically accurate. That is his statement about the inaccuracy of the Bible. Atheists also are saying this. Uh, C.J. Werleman uh, wrote a book. His first book was called God Lie, uh, Hate, you, Hate Him Back. And so uh, he's an atheist. Think about that title for a moment. I think a more honest title from an atheist would be Nothing Hates You, Hate Nothing Back, if there is no God. So, you know, why say God hates you? His second book, he, he likes provocative titles. Jesus lied, he was only human, tied up to a lie detector. And here's what he has to say. We do not have any of the original manuscripts of the Bible. The originals are lost. We don't know when and we don't know by whom. I agree with what he's saying so far. We have, what we have are copies of copies. In some instances, the copies we have are 20th generation copies. No idea where he got that last line from. But then there's others that might be taken even more seriously in the most popular British Muslim apologist who attacks Christianity uh, is M.M. Al-Azami. I was in uh, England in September uh, for a couple of weeks in Oxford and Cambridge and Birmingham and London examining manuscripts. And we'll be, we'll be going back here one of these days to photograph uh, some of the manuscripts that we looked at. Uh, and here's what he has to say. The Orthodox Church being the sect which eventually established supremacy over all the others stood in fervent opposition to various ideas, also known as heresies, which were in circulation. These included adoptionism, the notion that Jesus was not God, but a man. Remember, he's saying, this is what was in circulation. This author of uh, one of the books in the New Testament might hold to adoptionism, another hold to docetism, another to separationism. He goes on, he says, docetism, the opposite view that he was God and not man, and separationism, that the divine and human elements of Jesus Christ were two separate beings. In each case, this sect, the one that would rise to become the Orthodox Church, deliberately corrupted the scriptures so as to reflect its own theological visions of Christ while demolishing that of all rival sects. What is he saying? Essentially, 
He's saying, and this is what many, many Muslims and, and many skeptics believe, that in AD 325, when Emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor and the first one to legalize Christianity, uh, convened the Council of Nicaea. And at that council, there were two things that skeptics say happened. Constantine said, here's the books of the New Testament. I'm telling what you what goes in and what goes out. So that would be one way in which this is demolishing that of all rival sects. The other thing that Constantine allegedly did is he invented the deity of Christ. And that's what M.M. al-Azami is promoting. If that's true, we can't possibly tell what the original New Testament said. What we have in our hands is copies of copies of copies of handwritten copies of bad translations of bad, tra who knows, maybe it, it's a, a, a fairy tale like the um, Gilgamesh epic or something. We don't know if that's what the skeptics are saying is true. But do they get this kind of information from any kind of a better source than these popular statements? Well, actually they do. From a man by the name of Bart Ehrman, he is um, a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, very Christian school in Chicago, and Wheaton College, evangelical. He was an evangelical at the time. He went on to Princeton Seminary to get his Master of Divinity, and he studied under the great Bruce Metzger, one of the best New Testament scholars of the 20th century, and a fine evangelical scholar. Then he got his PhD under Bruce Metzger, also at Princeton Seminary, and uh, Bart Ehrman has been one of the best New Testament textual critics. That's somebody who's trying to examine the uh, manuscripts to determine the exact wording of the original. Uh, that, that we, he's one of the best that we have today. His first popular book was Misquoting Jesus, and he's written several since then. But in this book, he makes some statements that skeptics are just running with. He's a name you need to know because Bart Ehrman has become the number one apologist for skepticism about Christianity in the country. The number one apologist against the Christian faith. He abandoned the faith sometime after his doctoral program. He now calls himself either an agnostic or an atheist or an agnostic atheist or atheistic agnostic. It kind of depends on what day it is, I guess. But uh, here's what he had to say. This is a man we need to listen to. Not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. 20th generation, that's what that other guy said. This is as far as Ehrman goes, but that's a pretty astounding statement. And then toward the end of his book, he says, the more I studied the manuscript tradition of the New Testament, the more I realized just how radically the text had been altered over the years at the hands of the scribes. Be, it would be wrong to say, as people sometimes do, that the changes in our text have no real bearing on what the texts mean or on the theological conclusions that one draws from them. You start thinking about this, and these are pretty serious attacks on the reliability of the Bible. I think this is good enough. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Good, good news, right? Well, you older generation know who Paul Harvey is, and so now I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. 
I want to start with two attitudes that we need to avoid. The first is what I've just read from various people. Radical skepticism. I could reproduce that a hundredfold from all sorts of people who say we can't possibly get back to the original, and if we could, it would certainly look different from what we have today. Radical skepticism. I don't think too many of you are going to go in that direction, but maybe there's some skeptics here, and that's great. But the other attitude we need to avoid is absolute certainty. Some years ago, I was giving a lecture on the reliability of the Bible, and I talked about translations and what the better translations were. And a man came up to me, and he had a King James Bible, a very well-worn King James Bible. And he said, look, I disagree with everything you had to say. If the King James Bible was good enough for St. Paul, it's good enough for me. And he was serious. So I immediately changed the conversation. How about them cowboys? That's all he could really handle of, of an intellectual pursuit, I guess. But. but you all might fall into the same trap. If you have an ESV, one of the most popular translations out there, they've done some minor tweaks, but they're ready to do some major revisions. If you use the NIV, the most popular Bible in the history of the world, over a billion copies sold, it is the number one book sold all, ever. You know, of course, the Bible is the most popular book, and the NIV is the most popular translation. I've been on four different translation committees, still on two, and the NIV is one of them, and uh, I even worked on the New King James Bible a little bit. But uh, if you use um, one of these modern translations, they tweak it. If you have the NIV, is it the 1984 version? Is it the 2000? And uh, I think it's 11 version. We're working on a revision that will come out in another 10 years or so. Which version do you use? The text changes because we're doing more and more research. Literally millions of man and woman hours have been devoted to trying to determine the exact wording of the original text and then faithfully translating that. But our texts change because of our integrity. And so if you say, I have in my hands every single word in here is the very word of God. I have the words of God completely, totally, without any error in it in my Bible. Then I'd say, you've overstated your case. What you do have is the very word of God, but not always the very words of God. You see the difference? But what are the differences? Well. Do we really have errors in our modern translations? What are the kinds of differences that we're dealing with? We'll look at that as we get into this. So I have, I have a long introduction and then about five minutes for the actual substance of my lectures, but here's four questions to answer. We haven't gotten to the introduction yet. This is the uh, preface to the introduction. But four questions that we want to answer. And we'll spend the vast majority of our time on the first one, then we'll go through the other three pretty quickly. How many textual variants are there? That is, how many differences among the manuscripts do we have? All these manuscripts, how many are there? Um, and how many textual variants are there? What kinds of textual variations are there? What kinds of differences do we see? Are they just little things? Are they big issues? What theological beliefs depend on textually suspect passages? That's this and the last question are the real money questions. Does the virgin birth depend on, on this uh, Greek manuscript and all the others say Jesus was not born of a virgin? 
Does the deity of Christ depend on, hang on maybe a couple of manuscripts, and they might be wrong, and others say Jesus was not God. And obviously, the big issue is, has the essence of the Christian faith been corrupted by the scribes? Those are what we're going to try to answer today. But I have another preliminary question. Don't we have the original New Testament anymore? Well, the answer to that is no. All 27 books of the New Testament were sent out as documents to others, usually letters. And once they were dispatched, that's the original. Once it gets there, they start making copies, and they would make copies of copies. But they would also make uh, people would come maybe 100 years later and say, do you still have the original Paul's letter to the Romans? Yes, we have most of it, but most of it's fallen apart, or some of it's fallen apart, so you can write that out. And we have a good copy that has all the words, which may have mistakes in it. And so people copied the text so frequently because they valued the words of Paul and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that they, uh, they wore out these papyrus manuscripts. We don't have the originals anymore. They all disappeared within a century of the, the writing. But what about the copies? If the copies all agree with each other, then we don't need to do what's called textual criticism, trying to get back to the original. We just say, that must be it, because they all agree. No, even through the first 800 years of, Christian era, of the Christian era, our two closest manuscripts, in terms of agreement, disagree six to 10 times per chapter. So if you were to extrapolate that out for the Holy Testament, that's about 2,000 differences. So even our copies disagree. So because the originals have disappeared, the copies disagree, we have to do textual research. So I've got another preliminary question. I think this is, yeah, this is the last preliminary question. What is a textual variant? It's any place among the manuscripts in which there is a variation. It could be wording, including word order, omission, addition of words. Even spelling differences count as textual variants. What doesn't count is punctuation and capitalization because in our original manuscripts, all the words were capitalized. That's all they used was just capital letters. And they didn't have any breaks in the words and they use no punctuation. It's actually much easier to read Greek that way than you would realize. It would be much more difficult to read English like that. But this is the way in which we count a variant. All right, so how many variants do we actually have among these manuscripts? In this Greek New Testament, there are approximately 138,162 words. Now, it's got, some of you in the front row can see this, the others take it by faith, You've got text up here, and in here you've got footnotes. These footnotes in smaller print are telling you the variations from this text and which manuscripts have these differences. Some pages, the text gets bigger. Some pages, that, that apparatus gets to three-fourths high. How many variants do we have among all the manuscripts? We have approximately 1.5 million variants. Such an astounding number, more than 10 times the number of variants as there are words in the original Greek New Testament. How in the world did we get that many? And should that scare us? I mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier. Here's a good quote from him. The moment the miracle enters nature's realm, it obeys all her laws. Miraculous wine will intoxicate, miraculous conception will lead to pregnancy, 
Inspired books will suffer all the ordinary processes of textual corruption. Miraculous bread will be digested. So when you start getting copies of the original, there will be mistakes. But here's the reason we have so many, and there's nothing in the ancient world that has nearly as many textual variations as the New Testament. The reason we have a lot of textual variants is because we have a lot of manuscripts. In fact, scholars have called it an embarrassment of riches. The Greek manuscripts alone, the original language of the New Testament, handwritten documents, all of them unique. Today the count is well over 5,500. There's, it could be as high as 6,000, but there's some that were found later to be this manuscript is a part of this manuscript, so they count that as one instead. But, but uh, these are fragmentary or complete New Testaments or complete sections. The Gospels especially were very, very popular. But the New Testament did not just sit in Greek. If you have a Quran, the only inspired Quran is the Arabic Quran. All translation they regard as interpretation, but it's not what the Quran says. Not so with the New Testament. We regard all of this as the Word of God. What you have in your hands in English is the Word of God. And the, the New Testament got to be translated very early on, as early as the late second century, into Latin. We yet don't, do not yet know how many Latin manuscripts of the New Testament we have. About 10,000 is the best guess. Latin swept across Europe, and it became the lingua franca more than Greek did after a while. So we have almost twice as many Latin manuscripts as we do Greek. But it also got translated into Coptic, and Syriac, and Armenian, and Hebrew, and Arabic, and Old Church Slavonic, and Georgian, and Gothic. Our best guess is that these other ancient versions or translations, there's somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 manuscripts. And I've seen quite a few of them, very, very impressive, often to be slavishly faithful to the Greek manuscript that they copied from, that we no longer have. That's 20 to 25,000 manuscripts. That's a lot. Now, if you had a magic wand and could wipe all of these down, out in one fell swoop, we still would not be left without a witness. And that's because we also have the writings of the church fathers, patristic writings, starting in the late first century. We get writings by the, uh, by the church fathers all the way up through the 12th or 13th century, and they commented on every single book of the New Testament, sometimes many times. Sometimes there were many church fathers that commented on um, several books of the New Testament. You had a magic wand, you wipe all these out, all these manuscripts out. We still could reconstruct virtually the entire New Testament many times over from the writings of the church fathers. That's impressive. We have well over a million quotations from the New Testament by these church fathers. Okay, this sounds interesting, but how does it compare to other Greco-Roman literature? Let's take a look. I'm gonna compare it to the average classical Greek writer, and then I, I, I wish I had time to develop this more, and I, I was gonna have four or five different Greek authors I'd compare it to. 
that are far beyond uh, average. They're well-known historians, but the copies they have are just minimal. I'll just do one. The average classical Greek writer has fewer than 15 copies of his works still in existence. You compare that to the New Testament. Well, you stack up these uh, Greek authors' manuscripts, they'd stack up to about four feet high, about the size of this table. How about the New Testament? So, I would have, if I had spoken from a podium the way I properly should do in a church, It'd be about the same height. What would we use for the New Testament to show how high the stack is? It's good to get a visual representation of this. I think the Empire State Building in New York City is a great illustration of this. And I said it's in New York City for those of you who are from Oklahoma. You've heard of it, but now you know where it is. Okay. This is to scale. This is what this is going to look like to scale. You see that little dot? I think you can see that dot up there. That's, that's four feet high. That's the Empire State Building. So you do the comparison and 1,454 feet tall, including the, 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 uh, radio, I mean the uh, radio antennas on top. But I've got more room on this. This would be the numbers of manuscripts, New Testament manuscripts, stacks of copies going up and up and up. Oh, it's three. Oh, it's, it's four. It's four and a half Empire State Buildings. We have over 6,600 feet tall stacks of New Testament manuscripts not counting the writings of the church fathers. I have no idea how to count those. A mile and a quarter plus, four feet tall. New Testament scholars have such an embarrassment of riches that we want help from others to help us decipher this and get into the text and see what it is. If I were to do for uh, an average classical author what I'm doing for the New Testament of digitizing all copies of their manuscripts, I would get done in just a few weeks. The Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscript has already, it's already into its 20th year, and we're about 20% done. So I want to compare this to one well-known historian, Xenophon. He's a great military genius, philosopher, historian. He gave some of the most detailed uh, descriptions of battles that we've ever seen. That's how we learn how great of a military his, uh, genius he was. And in his Hellenica, very significant work, our first substantial manuscripts, more than just a scrap of papyrus here or there, don't come for 1,700 years until after his death. Over 1,700 years later, after he died, now we get our first substantial copies of Hellenica. And what, what if the New Testament were like that? What if our oldest copies of the New Testament were this late? Well, you know, you get these people, I've already quoted from them, saying, well, we have copies of copies of copies. How could we possibly trust that that goes back to it? Xenophon scholars don't doubt that the substantial text that they have in the manuscripts represents exactly what Xenophon said. Well, if our copies of the New Testament were this late, it would be like saying the New Testament, the oldest manuscripts we have in the New Testament were written 
at about the time the United States became the United States. That's when the skeptics would have a field day, wouldn't they? They think they do, but they're not comparing it to anything else. So what about the dates of these manuscripts, though? That, I mean, we're getting, uh, we looked at the dates of uh, Herodotus and some of the others a little bit, some general statements. Let me tell you briefly about the oldest New Testament manuscript, at least it was the oldest one uh, dated almost uh, 100 years ago. This is the discovery of P52 in 1934. It's about the size of a credit card. And on one side, it's got part of John 18. On the back side, it's got another part of John 18. We know that this manuscript was written on a codex. Now, we know that the New Testament manuscripts were all originally written on a scroll, which was the ancient book form. A codex is this book form. It's got two covers and three cut sides, and you can flip pages. With a scroll, you have to roll it to get to the place. So when Jesus is reading out of the scroll of Isaiah in Luke's gospel, where he's back home in Nazareth, he has to scroll all these chapters till he gets to chapter 61 to find where he's reading. You could just flip in this. Now, if you are a millennial, you might never have seen one of these things. It's called a book. When you read, you typically read on your I can't even say computer, that's almost passe now, your iPad, your iPhone, whatever you're gonna use. And you've gone retro on us. You're using a scroll to read. In the first century AD, the codex form was actually invented. We don't know who did it, but we do know that all of our New Testament manuscripts that we have copies of are written on a codex. And we also know that the Christians use the codex more than anybody else, 94% of all Christian manuscripts for the first 500 years of the Christian era were written on a codex. Only 15% of all non-Christian manuscripts were written on a codex during those 500 years. It was the first and only time in the history of the church where we were ahead of the technological curve. P52, this little fragment was discovered when European scholarship was saying that John's gospel was written in the second half of the second century. Most said about A.D. 170. Well, if it's written that late, they also said it doesn't have anything that even resembles historical accuracy. It was written so late, not written by uh, a disciple, not written by anybody who knew Jesus. It was handed down through generations. That was the predominant view in Europe until 1934 when this manuscript was discovered in a shoebox. It had been brought out of Egypt and it was dated by three different experts between 100 and 150. Now, I don't know what you were taught in school. I, I grew up in California, and you, you can save your booze for later. But I was taught that, generally speaking, an original of a document is written before the copy of the document is made. That's generally true, is it not? This sent two tons of German scholarship to the flames. Nope, you dated it that late? You guys just read dead wrong. It reminds me of a little saying that a professor taught me. An ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption. There was all this philosophical construct, hundreds, thousands of pages written on the assumption that John's gospel must be written about 170. Toss it all to the flames because we have an ounce of evidence, literally an ounce, a small fragment from John's Gospel that shows, nope, the original was written before you think it was, and consequently, so are the copies.
The original manuscript goes back to John pretty faithfully. Okay, well, let me just give you a, a, a broad sense, and I wish I had time to go over this. But you go this century by century, and we has, have as many as a dozen manuscripts from the second century. This is actually dated from last year, this slide, and I should update it. There may be as many as 15 or 16 now. There's more and more papyri that are coming out that are dated very, very early, second century, 100 to 200. By the time we get to AD 1000, we have at least 967 manuscripts in Greek, handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament. I'm just looking at Greek manuscripts here. Well, if you look at the average Greco-Roman author, we have more copies of the New Testament in the first two centuries than the average Greco-Roman author has in 2,000 years. And with, within 900 years of the New Testament's completion, we've got almost 1,000 manuscripts in Greek alone. Within 900 years of the average classical author's writings, zero manuscripts, zero. New Testament, good grief, we have 1,000. Xenophon, oh, we're still waiting another 800 years before we see anything that's substantial at all. That's pretty darn impressive. There's another way to put this. <coughs> Has the Bible been translated and retranslated so many times that we don't know what it originally said? Well, you can look at this from just the perspective of something that we all can sink our teeth into, the King James Bible. Something you know about, something you can read. This was published in 1611, and it was essentially based on eight Greek manuscripts, the earliest of which went back to the 11th century. And uh, we're talking about the, uh, the New Testament itself. Now, in the year 2022, we have more than 5,500 manuscripts, thousands of times more, almost 800 manuscripts per single manuscript that the King James authors uh, used. And our oldest manuscripts go back almost a thousand years earlier than theirs. You know what's really amazing is the Heidelberg Confession that you guys were reading from earlier was written even before the King James translation was done. And yet, what they said that then, based on the copies of the Bible that they had then, we can say today it hasn't changed. But I'll get to that point later. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. So the bottom line, as time goes on, we are getting closer and closer to the original text, not farther away. We still have those eight manuscripts that they used. Manuscripts don't get uh, copied and then they throw that manuscript away. Manuscripts get copied and then they store it and then we get to see it. Now the earliest ones were missing the first generation of copies, but even somebody coming along 100 years later might be a direct copyist of the original manuscript. It's amazing. As time goes on though, whatever else we want to say, we're getting closer and closer to the original text. So I can say without any doubt, without any exaggeration, what, what um, uh, I, um, oh, the, the, the fellow who wrote News, Newsweek, uh, Ike Eichwald, Kurt Eichwald, what he said is absolute rubbish. He has no idea what he's talking about when he says we're reading a bad translation of a bad, no. Translations are not based on other translations. They go back to the oldest manuscripts we have, and constantly they're improving. As time goes on, we're finding more manuscripts. Okay, that was question one. Told you that would take all our time. I hope that's helpful to you. I know it's, it's like drinking from a fire hose, way too much information. But what you need to get is this. 
We have so much data and it's so early that nothing in the ancient world even comes close to comparing to this. So we have a lot of variants because we have a lot of manuscripts. But the real money question is what kind of textual variants are there? And over 99% make virtually no difference at all. It's actually over 99.9%. They make virtually no difference at all. For example, differences in spelling. If you're from Oklahoma, you didn't catch the joke. <laughs> there was no dictionary back then, and so people could spell words the way they wanted to. My brother once wrote a check out to me and he misspelled, actually his own name. Last service I said he misspelled my name. He actually misspelled his own name. And, uh, accidentally, but uh, it was hard to cash that check. He really owed me some money, but he did it accidentally. John, the author of the fourth gospel, was a creative speller. Within the space of eight verses, he writes the exact same Greek word three different ways. For those of you who uh, know enough Greek to be dangerous, it's the verb anoigo. Third person singular, first aorist, active indicative of anoigo. He write it, writes it three different ways. But we won't uh, uh, go into that more. But he was a creative speller. It didn't affect anything. Changed exactly the same. Okay. So here's a question for the Greek geeks in the audience. How many ways are there to say John loves Mary in Greek? And we're talking about the numbers of variants that are totally insignificant. This is a good illustration of the kinds of things we see in the New Testament. 99.9% .9 fit into this general category. So items to consider is uh, how, how many ways are there to say John loves Mary? Well, the word can, order can be Mary loves John, loves John Mary, any order you want because it's the endings that tell you what the subject is and what the object is. And also the Greek article with proper names. We are not exactly sure why it's used. It might say, the John loves the Mary, or John loves the Mary. There was no indefinite article. It doesn't say, a John loves the Mary. But I, I wrote my master's thesis on when the article does not occur. And I spent 1,200 hours on that master's thesis, went through the whole New Testament, before the age of computers. That's how old I am. And then I did my doctoral dissertation on when the does occur. These two works would cure the most hopeless insomniac. <laughs> and I still don't understand why the is used with proper names. It has not affected a single doctrine. And it's just never translated. So differences in spelling as, as well, like the way you can say John in Greek, Ioannes or Ioannes, the different ways to spell Mary. So here's the eight ways you can say John loves Mary in Greek. You should write this down because it will show up on the test. <laughs> so write all the Greek down. Yeah, right. <laughs> 96 ways to say John loves Mary in Greek. At least that was my first stab at it. But you can also use conjunctions that are often untranslated in Greek, and they might put a slight emphasis, some of which we don't really fully grasp. So if you did that, oh, there's, yeah, that's right. 
384 ways to say John loves Mary in Greek. I hope you appreciate this. It took me eight hours to make those slides. And we zipped through, you know, 60 slides in just a couple minutes. So, and I realized when I got all done, no, oh, there's some I missed. So these are not all the ways you can say John loves Mary in Greek. There's other legitimate word orders that I missed at the time. I figured, I think I've proved my point though. Then there's a paraphrastic construction for loves that doubles all of this to now over a thousand. I'm still using the verbal form of agape each time. We know John. John never becomes Peter or James. Mary is always Mary. It's always agape. But what if I use a different verb like phileo, a little bit more intimate love? That mushrooms the numbers to over 2,000 ways to say John loves Mary in Greek without any substantial difference. That's impressive, isn't it? It's impressive when you put that piece of data up against what Bart Ehrman says in his book. We could go on nearly forever talking about specific places in which the texts of the New Testament came to be changed either accidentally or intentionally. The examples are not just in the hundreds, but in the thousands. I'd say they're in the hundreds of thousands. And these are not the issues that textual critics talk about because it would bore them to death. We are talking about that less than one-tenth of one percent. Those are the textual variants that are most interesting. If we can say John loves Mary over a thousand times in Greek without changing the meaning, the number of textual variants through the New Testament is meaningless. I don't care if it's one and a half million. I don't care if it's a hundred million. What counts is the nature of the variants. That's where we ask the, the real question, how does this affect the text? Less than one-tenth of one percent of all textual variants are both meaningful and viable. That is, they affect the meaning somehow, and they're viable. They have a, a, a good chance of actually reflecting the original wording. Less than one-tenth of one percent. This is not to scale, that dot, dot should be a lot smaller than that. So I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations. Illustrations of meaningful and viable variants, just two, because of time. This is one of my favorites. In Mark 9.29, we find, as far as I'm aware, the only verse where a textual variant may impact orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is right belief. Orthopraxy is right behavior, right actions. It has to do with exorcisms. This is the only verse in the New Testament that essentially says you must fast if you're going to exorcise some really pesky demons. And so Mark 9.29, the disciples failed, came to Jesus, and he said, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. Period. In a lot of the manuscripts, and quite a few are very early, very difficult to tell what's original. But a lot of other ones, including early ones, say, and fasting. So did Jesus say you can cast out these pesky demons just by prayer? Or is it prayer and fasting? I've been involved in a couple of exorcisms, and I've hedged my bet. I pray and I fast, just to make sure. I'm serious. I mean, that's, that's, I know it's funny, but it's a, I just was, I wasn't sure. Okay. Here's one that's really well known. 
Revelation 13, 18. Doesn't affect orthodoxy, doesn't affect orthopraxy. Let the one who has insight calculate the beast number, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Really? Are we sure of that? In the 1840s, a German scholar, very young in his career, was visiting Paris, and he examined a manuscript that was written in about A.D. 400, and it had the book of Revelation in it, as well as parts of the rest of the New Testament and Old Testament. One of the oldest manuscripts we have that has so much material. But it was a palimpsest. That's just a fancy word to say that the text he was trying to read had been erased or literally scraped off of this parchment, animal skin, so that somebody could write somebody's sermons there on top of it. It's a ironic. My sermons are more important than Scripture, but, you know, let's get rid of Scripture. I, I like what I have to say. There's some churches like down in Houston that would do that, I guess. But anyway, um, so what he discovered, and it took him two years to trace out those letters underneath the, the ones written on top. He could still barely see them. Two years of labor, 150 leaves to do this, five, uh, 300 pages. And he was able to detect over 99% of this manuscript. And he discovered in Revelation 13, it says, the number of the beast is 616, not 666. Well, that's interesting. And there's reasons why that might be original and what it would mean. But that was the only manuscript we had. Now, it was talked about in the second century by Irenaeus. He said, there are manuscripts that have the beast number is 616, but I don't think they're, they go back to John, what he wrote. Irenaeus said, I think 666 is the original. He gave some reasons. He may be right, but this variant was known in the second century, in the 100s. But it wasn't until 20 years ago, where now it's, I guess, 22 years ago, 23, that another manuscript popped up. It was a papyrus a fragment covering nine chapters in Revelation. There were 26 little fragments. And one of those fragments, about the size of a postage stamp, had Revelation 13, 18 in it. And it was published, as I said, about 23 years ago. It's an Oxyrhynchus papyrus, very old, ancient uh, papyrus. And it's um, much older. It's the oldest manuscript we have for this portion of Revelation, for many portions of Revelation. And it also says the number of the beast is 616. So now we have early patristic evidence, and we have one of the two most important manuscripts and the earliest manuscript for Revelation that say the number of the beast is 616. Well, is it? I, I am the senior New Testament editor for the Net Bible, and I'm the one who also makes the primary textual decisions. If I were just thinking play a joke. I might say, I insist that 616 is the right reading, give all the reasons for it, and that could get published in the next iteration, which would then send about seven tons of popular Christian literature to the flames. 666, we all know that. But what's really at stake here? Frankly, I don't know if 616 or 666 is the right reading. But I don't know of a single church a single Bible institute, a seminary, Bible college, any other Christian organization that has in its doctrinal statement, it says, we believe in the resurrection of Christ. We believe in the deity of Christ. We believe in his, his 
his crucifying work as atoning for our sins. We believe in the virgin birth. And we believe that the number of the beast is 666. It's important, but it's not that important. Now, frankly, most scholars would say, no, 616, that's not the number of the beast. That's the neighbor of the beast. He just lives a couple doors down, you know. <laughs> Some days I wake up, ah, first thing in my mind, 666. I think that's original. Other days, it's 616. I'm not sure. But what does it affect? You don't lose sleep over this, probably. I have to, or else I'll be out of a job, you know. So. Okay, question three. What theological beliefs depend on textually suspect passages? Well, we come back to that great scholar, Dan Brown, and he has Sir Lee Teabing tell Sophie in France about the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325 when Constantine allegedly um, declared that Jesus is God, and this is the first time it came about. My dear, he declared, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. Well, he's saying that Constantine invented the deity of Christ, and I have seen plenty of skeptical apologist books that make this very same claim, like that Muslim. An ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption. This is much more than an ounce of evidence. It's papyrus number 66. It's about 125 years older than that Council of Nicaea. And that Council of Nicaea, Constantine did not um, make up the deity of Christ. They were simply trying to define what they already believed in words that could be put into a confession. This manuscript has almost all of John in it, and this is the very first page, 125 years before the Council of Nicaea. And so what it says in John 1.1 is certainly going to be quite different from what we have later because Constantine invented the deity of Christ. So read along with me if you would. <laughs> in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You don't have that in your Bibles, do you? Of course you do. Every Bible says that. It might say it in slightly different words, like what God was, the Word was. I love that translation. But every single manuscript of John's Gospel, no matter the date, no matter the language, says virtually the same thing in John 1.1. Jesus is unequivocally called God. And the same could be said about the major passages that affirm his deity, virgin birth, sinlessness, death on a cross, his bodily resurrection, second coming, and on and on, and not a single variant contradicts this. That's powerful. The confessions that were made in the 16th century are based on different variants. At, well, no, they're, they're representing Bibles that had different variants, about 5,000 variants from what we have today. But none of them rises to the significance of affecting any doctrine. Isn't that amazing? We do have such a, you'd almost think maybe somebody's behind the scenes preserving the word somehow, even with all these mistakes. Question four, the, has the essence of the Christian faith been corrupted by the scribes? Well, I'll conclude with this. Eighty years ago, Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was a paleographer extraordinaire and the principal librarian of the British Museum, was studying. He's the one who discovered that first manuscript or first published about it that I put on the, the very first screen. 
He said, the general result of all these discoveries and all the study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the scriptures and our conviction that we have in our hands in substantial integrity the veritable word of God. 80 years ago, this is what Sir Frederick Kenyon said. Today, I'm saying the same thing. We have in our hands in substantial integrity the veritable word of God. Sure, there's some places we don't know what the original is, like 616 or 666, but you're not going to change your life because of that. Don't trust just Sir Frederick Kenyon. You can trust Bart Ehrman on this. In the paperback version to his um, misquoting Jesus, which was added after a few months, they wanted to keep the sales going on. Well over a million copies were sold within about a year, I think. But they, they, they wanted to bump the sales up. They had a hardback version. They created a paperback. And they had an appendix in there where the editors of, the, of Miss Quinn Jesus were asking him some questions based on their understanding of what he had written. And so they came right to the point. Why do you believe these core tenets of Christian orthodoxy to be in jeopardy based on the scribal errors you discovered in the biblical manuscripts? When that very direct question was posed to Ehrman, he had this to say, page 252 of the paperback version. You can get it at half price books, and you should, and Xerox that page. I'm sorry, photocopy it, take a picture on your iPhone, whatever you do nowadays, and show it to your skeptical friends. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. What? I thought that's what your book was saying all along. He speaks in generalities where chicken littles are going to declare that the sky is falling. But when you start to look at the details, you say, oh, the situation is completely different from how it was shaped, how my understanding was shaped. Two-thirds of Christian kids, or those who come from a Christian home, leave the church after college, two-thirds of them, because of skeptics like Bart Ehrman that their professors are quoting. They, they may read his books, but he's not the only one. There's plenty of them out there. But we need to dig deeper, not put our head in the sand. The truth is always on the side of the faith. I will conclude with a very unnatural segue. A polar bear attacks a man in Canada, and bystanders do nothing. The media didn't even report this. That's because they're so uh, uh, liberal. I'm sure, I'm sure that has something to do with it. Anyway. Okay, so polar bear. Some of the meanest bears on the planet attacks a man in Canada. Now, I want you to close your eyes and get a picture of this. Some of you may have eaten, and if you have small children with you under the age of 17, you might want to cover their eyes. This is R-rated stuff. You got a picture, an image? Okay. What I just said is true. A polar bear attacked a man in Canada. Isn't that cute? The polar bear is the textual variance that we have. The man is the scripture. Has it been corrupted? Has it been destroyed? It, maybe that polar bear was able to chomp a little bit off of one, of one of the threads of his 501 blues. That's about it. We have in our hands the veritable word of God, and this we can take to the bank and base our life on. Thank you so much.